Welcome to the Backyard Astronomer Podcast, where we talk astronomy, space, and science. From the Rockstar Studios, and brought to you by the Rockstar Group and Manzanita Insurance, I am Adam England, the Backyard Astronomer. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. I am here today with Greg Leonard, who is a senior research specialist at the University of Arizona Lunar and Planetary Lab, but specifically with the Catalina Sky Survey, which is a partnership with NASA. Is that the correct verbiage there, Greg? That is correct. Yep. Catalina Sky Survey is a NASA-funded project. And what kind of things do you do with the Catalina Sky Survey? At the Catalina Sky Survey, our prime mission is to discover and track near-Earth asteroids, the kind of asteroids that can potentially impact Earth or come very close to Earth. So this is like the the pre-Armageddon movie. You're finding the things that are headed our direction so that we can take them out or figure out what to do about it. That's exactly right. We are the front end of a process that would ultimately end, hopefully, with a mitigation uh, deflection of said impacting asteroid. Now, that's a pretty cool job. That's a pretty unique description of what you get to do on a regular basis. Where in your childhood did you fall down this path? What what was the impetus, and when did you get involved in astronomy and space and the sciences? Yeah, I never dreamed I'd be, you know, sort of a night watchman for the planet, for, for sure. Um, you know, my earliest recollection of, you know, an encounter with the cosmos would be, you know, I was about 10 years old, and we took a family trip to the coast of Maine. I, I grew up in Philadelphia in the murky skies uh, there. I remember it being in Maine in the summer and, and playing hide-and-seek. I ran off to hide and tripped. I fell down, and when I got up, I looked up, and there was a sky full of stars, including the summer Milky Way, and I was just stunned. I had never seen anything like it. Um, something very deep resonated with me, and it was a really humbling experience. Well, you know, flash forward, you know, into my middle school years, I was a really good student, but I did hit some speed bumps, you know, in middle school, as some kids are apt to do, especially growing up in Philadelphia in the 1970s and early 80s. Don't we all? Yeah. So, you know, I was looking for an outlet for my curiosity and my, my, my inspiration. And I started kind of fumbling through astronomy books and things. And I remember one evening, an uncle of mine pointed out Saturn in the evening sky, his naked eye. And I, I couldn't believe it. Surely you could not see Saturn with your naked eye. Um, any planets, much less ring Saturn. So I, I was really intrigued. I believed him. However, you know, trust but verify, I, I began to show interest, and in, uh, my parents gifted me a three-inch Newtonian reflector in 1979, an Edmund Scientific Reflector, and soon I trained my telescope on that point of light that was supposed to be Saturn, and sure enough, eventually when I found it and got into focus, there was this pristine little ringed world just hovering in the eyepiece. And that moment just resonates with me. I just could not believe what I was seeing. I felt as if I discovered Saturn myself, you know, for, yeah. certainly for the first time. It was really exciting. So that's kind of my first uh, first and second sort of real deep encounters with, with the cosmos. For me, growing up in northern Arizona, I grew up in the Prescott area, and I, I remember sleeping on the trampoline at night and just looking at the stars, same kind of thing, just laying on your back, taking in the, the heavens above you. Pretty dark skies at that time. I'm sure Maine was a little bit darker yet, uh, but Saturn was also the one that did it for me. 
I think that when a lot of people see those rings of Saturn for the first time, it's it's a crystallized moment. It's it's cathartic. It's religious. It's spiritual. It's it's a moment in time for so many people. And you're looking at these rings and you say, there's a little black spot between the rings and the planet. And we could almost squeeze Earth right in the middle there. And it really puts everything in perspective for us. I fully agree with that. And and especially Saturn and and then finding it myself with my own now own telescope. That was just really special moment. And then I moved right on to Jupiter and Jupiter was an equally magnificent world, a little solar system unto itself. Just a, it's a lot of fun. Those early, early nights discovering things for myself. You know, it would take me, I would take an hour to find M42, yeah. you know, the, the nebula in Orion, you know, just fumbling around. And, you know, when I eventually found it, I get so excited. I'd run in, you know, Tell my father, hey, you got to come out and see it. By the time he came out, of course, there was not a guided telescope. And it it's already moved. Off and, yeah, I'd have to go find it again. But, you know, he would humor me and, and tell me how wonderful it looked to him as well. Maybe it didn't for him, but for me, it was still just a wondrous experience. Now, you've upgraded telescopes a couple times over the years, but I, I believe you went to school in Arizona. Is that correct? I did. Uh, I first went to school at a community college uh, outside of Philadelphia. You know, I had to make up for a little bit of lost ground that I had in, in high school. And, you know, I became a, a straight-A dean's list student. So I decided I'd head to Arizona because this was one of the great centers for astronomy and planetary science and space science. So I enrolled there in astronomy and physics. And, you know, I, I really had some great early success. I became a, a summer intern at the National Solar Observatory studying um, Red Dwarf Stars, and I worked at the Campus Telescope. I was really involved, and that, that was a good thing for me because I realized that I, I got to see what real academic astronomers were doing, and, and frankly, for me, I realized that something inside, it just didn't resonate with me, uh, that particular track, and I didn't realize it at the time, so I moved into uh, the geosciences, and I eventually got a degree in geology. Now, I felt like there was a little bit of self-betrayal. I'd gone all the way to Arizona to get this degree. And here I am now in geology, but that it felt like a good fit for me. So here comes Gene Shoemaker to save the day. I'm watching a PBS documentary of Gene Shoemaker. This would have been sometime early mid-80s, mid-80s. He was talking about Voyager 2's encounter with uh, the Jovian satellites, the moons of Jupiter, and also Miranda, the moon of Uranus. Yeah, as it made the grand and, tour through the solar system. That's right. And so here he is talking about the geology of these worlds, and I see his title, Astrogeologist, U- U.S. Geological Survey. There was this great aha and relief moment. Oh, my gosh, I can still do space sciences. Here Boom, is a geologist. Is. Yeah, talking about these worlds. So that really set me off. and. Um, I eventually earned a, a summer internship, actually a postgraduate internship, to look at the USGS. And I could go any place I wanted to where the USGS had offices in, in, in the country. So I remembered about Gene Shoemaker and Flagstaff at the USGS. And I called him up and apparently got him out of a very tedious meeting. And he said, thank you for that. Uh, <laughs> how, how can I help you? <laughs> and I told him I, you know, I already had funding and I just needed a place to work. And, you know, I saw him on TV some years ago and I was interested. And so he's a celebrity um, I, in your eyes at that point. 
Yeah, he sure is. I didn't quite know the stature of, of Gene Shoemaker in the history of, of astronomy, astrogeology, and all that, but I did just call him up. And uh, let that be a lesson to listeners, just sometimes knock on a door, call somebody up. You never know where that could lead. Yeah. Um, so I ended up working with uh, Gene and Carolyn Shoemaker, along with Henry Holt and uh, David Levy on occasion at the Palomar Asteroid and Comet Survey. In, and uh, people California. might recognize those last names, Shoemaker and Levy. They're, they're, they, there was something special with them. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I, I had uh, worked a few months at the survey with them, the Palomar Asteroid and Comet Survey, and about a month or two after I had finished with them, uh, they had discovered Shoemaker-Levy 9, uh, the famous comet that was captured by Jupiter's gravity and ultimately met its fate as it plunged into Jupiter, um, much to the delight of professional and amateurs across the planet. It was really, it was kind of an aha moment for for planetary scientists, for scientists to actually finally see and realize that, yep, there are things that go bump in the night. Planets get hit by asteroids and comets. It's a natural solar system process. And so this was really gratifying in our lifetimes. And I know Gene felt really uh, gratified that he saw a real planetary scale impact in his lifetime. So you're right. That was a, a wonderful event that set a lot of um, actions in motion, including the support for surveys like Kelly Sky Survey and other asteroid, near-Earth asteroid surveys. Well, and we we look at the moon. We've looked at the moon for thousands of years as a culture, and we can see impact craters. And then we turned our telescopes towards Mars and towards Mercury and sent little devices and robots there to study these impact craters. So there's always been this hypothesis, at least for a very long time, that the gas giants we're protecting the inner solar system, but that was really the first time that we saw it, that we knew it, it was real and how it happened. Yeah, that's a good point. And uh, the, the large planets, especially Jupiter does act somewhat as a goalkeeper uh, for the inner solar system planets, kind of grabbing a hold of uh, mostly comets and, and asteroids, I'm sure on occasion, and uh, thwart their efforts to otherwise intrude in the inner solar system and hit a, a planet including Earth. So that is correct. And, you know, surprisingly, back in Gene Shoemaker's day in the, in, in the 50s and 60s, you know, a lot of folks still believe that a lot of the, uh, the circular features on the moon, for example, were these volcanic structures. They thought Meteor Crater was maybe a volcanic structure. And of course, he proved, without a doubt, Meteor Crater in Arizona, a very well-preserved crater here, um, was indeed a form by an asteroid impact. One of the, the best preserved on Earth is is it how it's reported. It is indeed, yeah. It's, it's relatively young, and of course, it's in Arizona, so there's it's pretty arid, and up on the Colorado Plateau, which has been stable for millions of years, and this, you know, impact is fifty thousand years old, so it's been able to to um, remain preserved for a long time. And so you've been you've had the opportunity to work with these greats in this uh, evolving field of research on not like you're saying the geometry, the geology of it, but also where these things are coming from and tracking their orbits and learning the, about the Oort cloud, which we had no idea up and even we still don't truly understand what's out there. So you've got the comets, but then you also have the rocks that are in the regular orbits around us. Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, the study of uh, asteroids is, is, is key to a lot of things that go on here on the Earth. I mean, asteroids have 
likely brought much of the water that's here on our planet. It used to be believed that, well, comets are mostly made of ice, including water ice, so it's likely comets that brought, you know, the lion's share of water to our planet. Looking more carefully in recent years at the uh, isotopes, the um, nitrogen isotopes and the oxygen isotopes in particular, it appears they have a much greater match with asteroids than comets. Interesting. Uh, especially or cloud comets. So, yeah, comets likely brought some water to the planet. And there still is some debate, too, that how much water may have actually been retained in the Earth's uh, minerals in the mantle, you know, even after its formation. So there's still some debate about that. But uh, suffice it to say, asteroids likely brought quite a bit of water to our planet early on. Now, did that understanding help evolve your passion into the other forms of geology and things. I know on your biography, it lists that you're a glaciologist as well. So you've studied glaciers and, and all around the world to my understanding. Yeah, that's right. You know, after working with uh, Gene Shoemaker, you know, funding eventually runs out. I had done actually some mapping of Mars. I mapped the Hellas Basin on Mars during my time there at USGS in the uh, mid nineties. And funding ran out, and I kind of said, hey, gee, you know, uh, what should I do? I was, a, I was a, a young geologist looking for his way in the world. And, you know, he, he gave me some advice. And one thing he, he said that always stuck with me is something is discovered for the first time only once. And, you know, as a young guy, I wasn't really sure what that meant. But now I, I do. It's really acted as a mantra in my life to orient my passion, my interest in science towards um, themes and places and activities that put me in the best position to make interesting, fun discoveries. So anyway, I, I realized that Gene in his early days actually did a bit of mineral prospecting, as did some of my favorite USGS uh, geologists at the branch of asteroid geology. So I had a job offer and I, I ended up working for, for industry, looking for gold and, and copper uh, around the planet in the southwest U.S. I lived and worked in the jungles of Indonesia for four years. And I also worked in Mongolia, outer Mongolia, for eight years. And this was really great because, you know, I was still doing some planetary science projects on the side with some USGS colleagues. And, and I realized that in order to talk about geology that, you know, is occurring on other planets or had occurred on other planets, millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions, billions of years ago, it would really be beneficial for me to have seen a lot of rocks on our planet, to see how volcanoes work, to see how you know, sediment, sedimentological pr principles work in action. So yeah, I really had this intrinsic um, passion and, and drive to see rocks on the planet so I could better describe and understand rocks going on somewhere else. So that's what I did for a lot of years. And um, you mentioned the glaciers. I eventually ended up working with um, a former USGS colleague of mine um, who also studies planets. We still study planets together, Mars and Mercury in particular. Uh, he got involved in a project um, using satellite imagery of the Earth to monitor how glaciers are basically <laughs> disappearing or really waning uh, alpine glaciers, mountain glaciers. Across a lot the of planet. recession. A lot of recession. I ended up uh, doing a lot of remote sensing work, you know, desktop work of, of glaciers all over the planet and working in Alaska and several uh, several expeditions in the Nepal Himalayas. I floated on high altitude glacial lakes, taking bathymetric surveys there and uh, just, 
just picture, you know, up at 18,000 feet with uh, mountains around you that are going up another 12,000 feet. Yeah, standing okay? at the right. top of the world. Yeah, yeah. It's it just fantastic. So for me, it, there was no doubt that geology was the right path for me because it enabled me to travel, to adventure, to discover and explore and continue to do planetary geology, which I love. So uh, I would never, you know, to give any any kind of advice to, to potentially, um, you know, scientists, young young kids, and boys and girls, you know, follow what's in your heart, and you can't go wrong. That's that's probably the best advice I can give. So you've been looking at rocks all over the world, and you've been uh, as analog science comparing it to those surfaces that you can't go and physically inspect on Mars and Mercury. And you've been studying this all around the world, but then you came back to Arizona and you're back with telescopes. How did that happen? Well, you know, all good things come to an end and, and, and thus did the work with glaciers. Uh, you know, some funding sources ran out and I, I started to kind of search around and soul search too. Like, what do I want to do next? What, what can I do? And I had bumped into, um, to Rick Hill. Rick Hill was an astronomer with the Catalina Sky Survey through much of the noughts and the early teens. I uh, bumped into him at a meteorite dealer at the Tucson Gem and Mineral Show, and, yeah. and I knew he knew he worked at Catalina Sky Survey. We just talked for an hour. He said, you should apply. And then a couple of years later, um, yeah, I knocked on the door. I said, this is what I want to do. This is a group of folks that discover things and that you know contribute to planetary defense. And I just wholeheartedly jumped back into it. I applied and, and eventually got a position there. And I've been, been with Catalina Sky, Sky Survey now for six years. Now, that's up on Mount Lemmon, correct? Yeah. Uh, more technically, it's in the Santa Catalina Mountains. Okay. That are just north of Tucson at the summit, which is Mount Lemmon. We operate two telescopes. And 1,000 feet lower on Mount Bigelow, also in Santa Catalina, we operate two telescopes. And there's a lot of telescopes up there. I think on Mount Lemmon specifically, there's like eight, but there's dozens of telescopes in this area. Oh, yeah, for sure. You know, just you look around, almost every tall mountain peak has an observatory. You've got Kitt Peak, you've got Mount Hopkins and the Santa Rita's to the south. The Large Binocular yeah. Telescope. Yes, we look across the valley and we can see um, the Large Binocular Telescope reflecting in, in, the, in the sunset from the top of Mount Lemmon. It's just spectacular yeah. to look out there and see all these observatories. And what, what is the main piece of equipment that you use now? Uh, with Catalina? Yeah. With Catalina, our, our primary survey telescope, this is the Discovery Telescope, is a 1.5-meter reflecting telescope. And attached to that is an 111-megapixel single CCD chip. Okay, so all that uh, 1.5 meters of mirror is being focused on that chip, which is just astounding. And you know, that's our primary survey instrument that discovers you know, more asteroids than any other telescope on the planet. We have another survey telescope. It's our um, 0.7-meter Schmidt telescope down on Mount Bigelow. And that's got uh, a wider field, but of course, being a smaller aperture, it doesn't quite see as deep. But it's got a, about a 19-square-degree field of view, if you can imagine that. Yeah. So it's a, it's a real big net, you know, to capture any um, near-Earth asteroids that happen to be, you know, transiting through that field as we're looking against the background of the stars. 
and I'm sure I have the numbers out of date because these things happen so common, but you have personally either discovered or been involved in the discovery of 1,450 or more than that near-Earth asteroids and 11 comets. Is that correct? Yeah, right now, you know, this, these numbers change quickly. Uh, fortunately, in my case, you know, I've got roughly approaching 1,600 near-Earth wow. asteroid discoveries in six years' time. And, and that's, you know, not so much a testament to my prowess as a near-Earth asteroid discoverer, but it's really, you know, my success stands on the shoulders of our, of our optical and our software engineers that, that write the programs that enable us to, you know, systematically and in a semi-automated way, track and discover these things on our behalf. And yeah, we need to be there. That's why we are a real-time uh, operation to validate all the potential candidates that come our way each night at the telescope. But anyway, it's a shout out again to our engineers that we would not find a single thing if it wasn't for for them and for mountain operations crew on, on Mount Lemon and Mount Bigelow that keep, you know, keep the telescopes healthy on our behalf. And your team and your equipment's doing it a little bit different than, say, Clyde Tombaugh in Flagstaff at the Lowell Observatory looking for Pluto. He was putting up plates and comparing dots that might have moved a millimeter over nights and weeks and months. How do you do your science? What are you looking for? Yeah, a typical night would involve, you know, a clear night, you know, scanning across a declination band across the sky. And we have hundreds of fields that we will be observing in any given night. With each one of those fields, we will take four integrations, four 30-second images of that piece of sky. And each one of those images is four separated by about six or seven minutes in time. And once they're processed through, you know, a bank of computers for calibrating um, the night sky and, and doing a star fit, it presents us with candidates. And what that is is showing us some objects that may or may not be near-Earth asteroids. It turns out we get a ton of false positives. So you can imagine blinking through four fields that have been separated by five or six minutes each and seeing the same star field. And we will see if anything's real, it'll be tracking across, you know, three or four of the images, uh, an object, a little blip of light, or maybe a streak if it's in near-Earth space, it'll move across there quicker. But we will see that as a real object. And if we determine it's a new object, we, you know, we'll ping a, a digital database and that digital database lets us know if there's any object that is in that part of the sky moving in that direction. If not, it's a new near-Earth object candidate. We submit that to the Meyer Planet Center in Harvard, Massachusetts. And within minutes, you know, it's typically posted on the near-Earth object confirmation page as a new candidate that requires additional follow-up that night and in subsequent nights to, you know, eventually constrain its orbit and lock down its orbit. Um, let me get back real quick, though. There's a lot of false positives, and those false positives can be combinations of really dim background stars, a cosmic ray, some noise, you know, on the chip, and that sort of thing. So we, we say no to a lot of a lot more objects than we say yes to in this business. And with those 30-second exposures on a 111-megapixel chip, you're collecting a lot of light. You are able to see very deep into the background. Yeah, that's right. You know, uh, sort of nominally, we, we pretty easily get down to magnitude v, uh, V21.5 
on nights of exceptional seeing, you know, we're, we're dipping into 22, low 22s, 22.5 even objects on occasion. So we're seeing objects that are extremely dim. Wow. And what kind of size does that correlate to? What's the smallest size object that you're able to capture? Typically, the very smallest things will be roughly a meter, okay? Just, you know, anywhere from three to maybe six feet across. And they have to be very, you know, close to the earth to see if we could not see something that's a meter across that's out, you know, by Mars or something like that. It's got to be, you know, uh, a couple earth-moon distances out or closer for something that small to be seen. And suffice it to say, objects of that size are, you know, zero threat to the planet. So, yeah, we might not see them till they're on our cosmic doorstep. However, we don't need to worry about it because if and when they impact the atmosphere, they largely burn up, pop into the ocean harmlessly. Now, a couple of years ago, we had the Chelyabinsk event over Russia, um, which actually a few months ago on this podcast, we had Robert Ward who uh, helped discover that asteroid once it once it landed, that meteorite. And so I've, I've held a little piece of that, and that was really unique. Did you know things like that are coming towards Earth beforehand, that object or others like it? Yeah, very good question. Uh, um, full disclosure, I also uh, own a piece of Jelly Bent. Yeah. That's a really fun uh, fun event. And, you know, a bunch of people did get hurt. 1,200 people got injured with some shrapnel. and Lots of glass breakage, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, There was no uh, no deaths, but people did get hurt there. And that object, you know, came out of Earth's blind spot, which is, not surprisingly, the daytime sky in the direction of the sun. Yeah. It, came, it came in the morning sky um, out of the direction of the sun, and it sort of surprised uh, everybody. And a lot of good science has been done with that. And it sounds like your, your previous guest uh, talked about that, which was really nice to hear. Now, our project was the first project in history to discover pre-impact an object. This was 2008 TC3. That's the name of this small asteroid. It was, you know, about eight, 10 feet across. And my colleague, Richard Kowalski, discovered this object. He didn't know it was going to be an impactor. He actually woke up the next day and found out that uh, this thing was on an impact trajectory. There was just enough um, observations after the fact that they, they tracked it in. It landed in northern uh, in Sudan, and fragments were collected of that object as well. And that meteorite is known as Amahata Sita. And so Richard holds the distinction of being the first human in history to discover an object, you know, pre-impact, and actually hold a piece of it in his hand. After the fact. Wow. That's, that's, yeah, that's an awesome event. Yeah, so we also um, discovered the second and the third impacting asteroids in history. And... Uh, Actually, it was Richard Kowalski that discovered all three. Uh, we call him the impact king in that regard. Yeah, 2014 AA, the very first asteroid of 2014. This would have been, you know, New Year's Eve, you know, 2013 going into 2014. He discovered an object that plopped into the Atlantic Ocean somewhere, and nothing was recovered there. Likely another small asteroid, probably a, a meter or two across. And then in 2018, um, I can't remember the name, 2018LA, I think it is. And that object uh, landed uh, fragments of it, small fragments near Zimbabwe South and South African border. And uh, some fragments were, were collected there as well. That's really neat. And so you use those designations. You'll see letters and numbers 
designating how early in the year they were discovered, um, such as there's this comet C2021A1. That sounds like it was discovered at the very beginning of 2021. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, 2021 this year, and the A refers to the half month within which it was discovered, A being the first half of January. The second half of January would be B, and then so on down the alphabet through the year. And the one being, well, the first uh, comet discovered, you know, in the first part of January. So this is the very first comet discovery, and um, this was an incidental or serendipitous discovery, as all of our comets are, right? That was my 10th comet discovery, and since then, I've discovered three more. I've got 13 comets. Now, uh, why wouldn't people have heard about the other 12 Comet Leonards or any other comets that we've discovered, you know, hundreds of comets at the Catalina Sky Survey? Well, most comets, they don't come close enough to the sun or the Earth to put on any kind of show, certainly not of interest to a casual backyard observer. This comet you know, had the distinction of being within an orbit that brings it relatively close to the sun, 0.6 astronomical units, and close to the Earth, about 0.23 AUs, that uh, it was anticipated that it could put on a show and brighten up. And here we are, right in the middle now of, of a little bit of comet fever going on around the planet with this comet. Yeah, Comet Leonard has been in the media quite a bit. I, I see it every day. It doesn't matter which one of the major news stations. There's something about Comet Leonard, and that carries your name. How do you get that? Uh, is is the International Astronomical Union? Do they actually designate it Comet Leonard, or is that more of a colloquial term? It is the IAU. That is correct. Uh, we have no choice in the matter of what these things get named. Uh, so whoever discovers it, whoever first reports activity, cometary activity, which in this case, you know, I saw a coma or that little thin, tenuous atmosphere that forms around the nucleus of the comet when it gets close enough to the sun, I saw that fuzzy coma and a little bit of a stubby tail as well. So I I saw it as a comet. I reported that activity, and apparently I was the the first one to see it. Uh, Not surprising because it was discovered at magnitude 19.5-ish. This is about 400,000 times dimmer than we can see with our human eyes. So, yeah, extremely dim uh, object. And anyway, I was the first one to report the activity, and, and it, it, it got my name. You know, within a day or two, there were pre-covery images. So pre-coveries, as you know, are, are observations that predate the discovery images. So you might ask, well, if there was discovery, I mean, if there was pre-covery images, why doesn't it get a name of somebody else? Well, you know, months before our survey actually had some images of it. However, at that time, it was too distant to likely have any cometary activity going on, so there wasn't any coma or tail visible. Also, it was likely too distant to kind of um, uh, have our software pick it up as a near-Earth object. It didn't sort of have the motion. It was probably too distant, so it was moving too slow. It may have appeared to our software something like a main belt asteroid, so it was kind of ignored. But the record of it still exists in those images. And you know, once you get a little bit of uh, orbital information from the discovery and you track back, these pre-covery uh, images you know, pop up and there we find it again and extended back the orbit several months. That orbit was locked in and we saw that it was a, on a very interesting orbit that we're enjoying right now. And so in that, that magnitude 19-ish early January 1st view, where about in the solar system was it? 
it was out at about five astronomical units. So that's, you know, 750 million kilometers, uh, 450 million miles out. That is out at the distance of Jupiter. It was not near Jupiter. In fact, Comet Leonard is on a fairly steep angle and coming in in a, in a retrograde orbit. It's sort of going against the, the, uh, the orbital um, grain of most of the major planets. It's coming and backwards and steep. Backwards and steep, yeah. That's exactly right. And then it proceeded to get closer to Earth, with which we just passed close approach this week, correct? Close approach will be on Sunday. It'll be the 12th. Okay. And it's, it's a very challenging object right now to view because it's very close to the sun. It doesn't have a, a high angular separation from the sun. And that sort of is good and bad. The, the difficult factor is it's close to the sun, so now you need to see it just before the, you know, the sun rises, maybe an hour before, still looking east. You can probably capture it this weekend, um, December 11, 12, Saturday, Sunday. Then on the 12th, 13th, it's going to transition into the evening sky. And each night, it's still going to be low on the western, southwestern horizon. And it's going to increase its altitude just a little bit as the week goes on. And I'm talking about the week of December 13th through 17th. The good thing is around, I think, the 15th, 16th, it's going to be five degrees from Venus. So for those who may not have been able to observe it yet, that may be a good uh, night to go out because Venus will be a reasonably good guidepost to try to find the comet. And at that point, most people should be able to find it with a small pair of binoculars or one of those little three-inch telescopes like you had as a, as a child. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, binoculars, I think, are always really the best tool when it comes to comets of this magnitude. Right now, it's about magnitude five or so. I've been able to see it naked eye. I've been going out on clear mornings to the Catalinas. My wife and I, we've been enjoying it through binoculars. It's a real easy target with my 8-inch Dobsonian telescope. And then naked eye, I've just been able to see it. But this is under real dark skies. And now the Earth is tilted, and this is coming in steep. And so after the 17th, it'll start to become more visible in the southern hemisphere. That's right. Um, I can't remember which date exactly. I think it might be at the 17th when it crosses, you know, the ecliptic basically and starts heading down into the southern hemisphere. So this upcoming week, week of 13 through 17, is pragmatically the last chance that us northern hemisphere folks will get to easily see it. I need to mention one other effect. There's a phenomenon known as forward scattering. And that's basically when the sunlight is shining through the tail, the dust in the tail of the comet. And forward scattering has been known historically with comets that are sort of near sunrise or sunset to increase the magnitude one, two, maybe three times. So if it reaches, say, magnitude four, as maybe anticipated this weekend, into next week, there's a chance it could get to magnitude three, two, or maybe one with any hope. And that'll make it easier for folks to see. That's and essentially I am the scattering is like, um, like a sunset. It's, it's using the sun's light to diffract through the, and scatter through those different um, elements that are diffusing into the tail. And so you're, it's going to be much, much brighter for people to see. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, you can imagine uh, if you see 
like a nice puffy cloud, you know, on the western horizon at sunset. Occasionally, you'll see that beautiful, bright, you know, silver lining, as we call it, this bright rim around this cloud. That's forward scattering. So that's what we anticipate happening with this comet. There's still questions about how dusty this comet is. Is it dusty enough to really allow that forward scattering effect to, you know, to contribute to its brightening? I'm certainly hoping for that. I'm going to be out every clear evening just after sunset looking and scanning that western, southwestern horizon to see if we can see the comet easily. And like you said, with comets, we never know. Comets, we never know. Uh, famous comet hunter discoverer David Levy once equipped comets are like cats, both have tails, and both do precisely what they want. And that is true with comets. They are highly unpredictable, and that's what makes them so much fun to, to look at and observe and study. And on the 18th, it's making its close approach to Venus, just about two and a half million miles from Venus on that night. Yeah, this is quite interesting. It, 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 this is really just missing Venus by a cosmic whisper. This thing is practically like two and a half days uh, from clobbering Venus. Yeah, it's only about Venus. 10 lunar distances. Is the distance from us to the moon. It's only going to be about 10 of those away from Venus. I wish... You know, it's it's impossible, of course, but if one were able to stand on Venus and look through that thick atmosphere, this would be just a magnificent uh, view from the night side of Venus. There is a JAXA, a Japanese space agency, orbiting uh, spacecraft called Akatsuki, and it's my hope that they will be observing, if not the comet directly, they have some instruments that are capable of that perhaps there is going to be a meteor shower on Venus if the dust had spread out enough in its, in its wake of the comet for this spacecraft to view possible Comet Leonard meteors and in will, the atmosphere. will we experience a meteor shower from this in future years? Is that possible? I don't think so. It seems like it's, you know, we're not really going to pass through that uh that portion of the tail. It's too interior, you know, to, to Earth for that to happen. Gotcha. I haven't seen any anybody reporting on that. I don't think it's going to be the case. And then after it, it passes perihelion, which is its closest approach to the sun, it's going to fling around the sun, and it, the sun is ejecting it from our solar system. Is that correct? That is correct. This it's, thing's uh, not coming back like Halley's Comet every 75 years. This thing is on its way out. It's on its way out. So say hello and goodbye to this Comet Leonard for sure. On January 3rd, it reaches perihelion, its closest point to the sun, after which it's on a hyperbolic trajectory. It will be ejected from our solar system and cruise on, you know, interstellar space for tens, hundreds of millions of years, perhaps, and likely haunt some other stellar system, you know, in that time. <laughs> to be a fly on the wall of a comet and its journey through the solar system would just be amazing. Yeah, yeah, they're they're really magical. As many as there are, we we love comets. Um, there's this mystery, there's this marvel, and and even a little touch of menace too. I mean, these things have likely impacted the Earth over the billions of years of Earth's history. And you know, in historic times, comets have been feared. They're, they've been looked at as as omens, perhaps of, of ill tidings towards yeah, civilizations and kingdoms. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So there's 
the comet sort of have all three of those things going for it. Though there's also stories of, um, I believe it was Constantine that was going into battle and his astronomers had warned him in advance that there was this comet that was coming and he used it to jazz up his troops and say, hey, there's going to be a sign from the heavens letting us know that we will win this battle. And lo and behold, uh, a short period comet was there on the expected time frame. Yeah, I didn't know that story. That's that's also quite interesting. And I don't know, you know, how many stories are coming out of this comet. There's a lot of uh, a lot of people come out when comets are, are near naked eye, and it's been fun. You know, I, a morning routine for me now as I wake up and get my coffee going, and I just go on online on the web, and I just see these magnificent astrophotography images pour in from the northern hemisphere, from Europe, from North America, from parts of the Middle East and Asia, and it's just a lot of fun to, to see this beautiful comet being enjoyed at, at a whole variety of different levels, amateurs and professionals. It's been a real, it's been a real joy. The, the last few years with the citizen science and the astrophotography technology that has developed, it's been really neat to see how basically amateurs can get into this and do things that previously you, you thought it was really just Hubble, you know, or a, a high-end observatory could see these things, but people can see it from their own backyards. Yeah, I agree. Uh, some of the images coming in, you feel like you're just floating out in space and looking at this magnificent comet. It's coma. It's blue-green coma. It's long tail. It's really, really spectacular. And, you know, talking about amateurs, uh, plenty of amateurs now, and I almost hate to call them amateurs because what they're producing is real professional-grade astrometry, positional measurements of near-Earth asteroids that we find. It's, it's been wonderful to see the participation of the community across the globe. And in some cases, it really helps. Maybe an object would otherwise become uh, lost again until it's picked up years later by our surveys. But it may become lost unless maybe an amateur in Europe or, or in Japan or somebody gets measurements on it on our behalf. So they've really been doing wonderful service for us. And it's just been great to see that level of participation. Lots more pre-coveries. Lots more pre-coveries as well. That is true. Well, Greg, I, I really appreciate you uh, sharing with us today. It's been very interesting to learn about your comet and the path that you got through through your passions for science and different sciences. Like you said, starting from astronomy, but finding geology and then moving back into how those things interconnect with planetary science. How can our listeners follow your work and future discoveries? I think, you know, watch the... Uh Space for the Catalina Sky Survey. We have a website and we usually post any new and interesting discoveries there. And uh, I'll be happy to keep in touch with you too. And, you know, I come out with papers now throughout the year of my work with Mercury and Mars. So um, we can keep in contact on that too. And that, that may be a topic for, for future discussion. It would be a pleasure to, to highlight some of those continuing discoveries. As we live in, in such a unique age of discovery, it, it really does not end. Every day there's something new. Yeah, I agree. Well, thanks for being with us, Greg. Uh, I wish you clear skies. I know today is uh, is Friday and in Prescott, it's been rainy and cold and cloudy. So the last few nights, we haven't been able to get out and see the comet. I'm hoping you have some clear skies for the next few nights. And then as it swings around on, on the 12th, 13th, 15th, 17th, up in as it comes around by Venus in those evening hours, you can start to see some of the comet there as well. Uh, you're most welcome. It's been a real pleasure spending time with you, and I hope folks have clear skies, can go out and see the comet this weekend and into next week in the early evening sky. Thank you, Greg. You're welcome. Bye now. You don't have to be a professional astronomer or have fancy equipment to see amazing objects in the night sky. You just have to know where to look. 
Join us next month to learn more about your binoculars, telescope in the sky, and follow the Northern Arizona Astronomical Consortium at facebook.com slash From the Rockstar Studios in Prescott, Arizona, I'm Adam England, the Backyard Astronomer.